Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Well, we often find ourselves talking about London Bridge on this show, but really, when you're talking about London Bridge, the question is which one? The temptation, of course, is to linger on the higgledy-piggledy mess that is the old London Bridge with its towers and its buildings which meet at the top, and the chaos going in as people get blown off the sides and so forth. And indeed, that will be our starting point. But we're going to be looking, in particular, at a later iteration. It's February the seventh, twenty fourteen. I'm in Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a long throw from your front door. Hello, hello. We're in a church today, which is why there's the slightly hushed reverential tone to my voice. And uh, there will be to that of Travis Elborough as well, who's with me here at St. Magnus the Martyr Church on the north bank of the Thames and at a very particular location in relation to today's subject. Hello, Travis. Hello, Quinton. We are looking at uh, London Bridge. And uh, the the first thing that I've discovered here that I didn't know before is that it's only 10 feet long. (laughs) We're standing in front of a model of London Bridge, which is indeed only about 10 feet long kind of very it looks to be made out of matchsticks uh, by some diligent soul but it is a rather beautiful thing it is and um as we well I th- i'll tell you what i'd like to do actually because we're going to be looking um at the, the the history of london bridge but with a focus at the the middle part of its history i suppose is the the clumsy way to put this and we'll come to your book in just a moment which is really the the basis for us meeting but I'd like to look at this beautiful model because this is really quite something. And if you've not been to St. Magnus the Martyr before, you need to get along here. The interior decor is phenomenal. It's got that very Catholic feel, even though um, I, I think, Travis, it's not a Catholic no, it's, church. It's, it's a Wren church from just after the, the Great Fire. Uh, so it would have been a Protestant church, definitely. But it's very, very elegant with lots of pleasing gold work, shall we say. And we like a bit of stained glass here, and there's plenty of that in evidence. Because my knowledge of the Christian faith and its iconography is pretty limited, I'm not going to attempt to do justice to what's here, but do come along and and have a look. And uh, we're going to focus in on this historical model, and perhaps we'll start at the end of the bridge where we find ourselves now, because, in fact, this location, as I say, is important to the history of London Bridge. For what reason? Well, what's important about about this location and why the model model is here is that St Magnus de Martyr Church... uh, stands 
practically bang next door to the old footway uh, to London Bridge, the original London Bridge. Now, the original stone London Bridge was actually erected by a priest bridge builder, and there's a whole tradition uh, starting after the Crusades of clerics um, who would fund building of, of bridges as an act of faith. Um, and Peter Colchurch uh, raises the funds uh, for the erection of the first stone London Bridge uh, in the 12th century. He unfortunately dies before it's completed, um, and is actually buried, uh, his body is buried in a chapel at the end of uh, of the bridge. And we also have to remember that until 1729, there's only one London bridge, uh, one bridge across the Thames uh, up to Richmond. So the only way to get across from the city of London on the north bank where we are to the southern side, to Southwark uh, and Borough and the kind of stews and wildness and theatres and brothels that are located on the south bank is via London Bridge or by the boatman. So you know, it's a, it's a fundamental artery uh, to London, and you know the bridge tunnels and funnels uh, everyone arriving from the south into London and the north leaving. Um, it, it's it, you know, it's has nineteen archway, nineteen cutwaters, and and a, and a drawbridge, and it's an uneven uh, kind of snaggledy-toothed bridge. In a way, you know, the whole the way that the cutwaters are, are rather like an American idea of of British dentistry. They're kind of like fangs into into the, into the River Thames. The the cutwaters, uh, I'm presuming, are these little promontories out at exactly, the, at the yeah. foot of each yeah. arch. Yeah, the archways that, that run across it, um, and you know, it's incredibly narrow. And, w- and one thing to do about coming to this church as well, if you stand to the right of it and look down towards the the river which is a building in the way now but you can see how extraordinarily narrow the original london bridge was and also obviously it, it was occupied there were you know, houses and shops all the way along it until um the 1750s uh, when they were eventually removed um and some of them were damaged also during the, the great fire of uh, which was why the church itself was built now I'm going to pin you down a little bit here because you use the term original London Bridge, and you, you've said old London Bridge, and you've said De Colchurch Bridge. De Colchurch or De Col- uh, Peter De Colchurch. De Colchurch Bridge. Yeah. Okay. Now I want to make sure that I'm attaching the right labels to the right things because this is going to be important as we move on. We know, I think, that back in uh, even back in Roman times, uh, I think in fact when the Romans arrived in this part of the world, they found the, the stubs of a bridge that had, uh, had been and gone. So when we say the original bridge and the decolture, which names are we attaching to well, which I mean, iterations? There, fittingly, in a sense, for London, uh, the history of London Bridge is, is, is foggy, to say the least. Um, I mean, some of the documentary evidence of it only really goes back to Anglo-Saxon times. Uh, and One document in particular describes the bridge in passing uh, in a witch trial document, and the bridge is the thing which the spellcaster is thrown off of rather than the kind of centre of attention. Um, yeah, I mean, probably in about AD 43 when the Romans uh, arrived, they certainly forded the Thames at some point near where uh, our, our current London Bridge is, that even that is not entirely certain. And there, there is pro- the possibility that there was a bridge uh, further down, down, down the river too. Um, but effectively, by the Middle Ages, there was a wooden crossing um, uh, roughly where the, you know, the contemporary London Bridge is and where de Colchurch built his, his bridge. Now, de Colchurch Bridge is, is t- slightly to the left of, um, of the contemporary London Bridge, and the contemporary London Bridge is occupied on the same site that the bridge that, in a sense, occupies the centre of my book, uh, which is the John Rennie Bridge from 1831, is. 
And we'll be uh, we'll be coming on to that uh, in, right. intrigue yeah. shortly. <laughs> uh, lingering on the the old Britain, no, I'm going to call this the original bridge, even though we know it's yeah. Not. I, mean, I, I think the phrasing is always used the, is old London Bridge old with London with, bridge. with capital O for old, old <laughs> and L and you know, L and B also being capital. But old London Bridge is is the romantic bridge in a way, isn't it? It you know it's it's occupied. It also uh, until you know the 1650s has heads on spikes shoved onto it, um, including the, I think the first was. William Wallace, the, the Scottish rebel, as immortalised uh, in, in the Braveheart film. And but also Thomas More, who people will know from, if, you know, from history, but also uh, you know, avid fans of Hilary Mantle's novels. Um, he, his head was also displayed uh, on Old London Bridge. And rather interestingly, from my point of view, Moore's great book, Utopia, which is about this uh, ideal society, uh, he cited his utopia somewhere in the newfound land, so i.e. America. So there's a sense that uh, you know, Moore's head ends up on London Bridge and then a later iteration of that ends up in the newfound land. Mm. As we look at this model... I'm struggling to find correspondences with the topography of the town as it is. Now, I know that the river has narrowed because of having embankments installed and so forth. What I'm struggling to see is where the church that we're currently in fits into all of this. And my my eye is on the only vaguely religious-looking building in this, which seems to be halfway across the bridge mm. in the middle of the river. That can't be it, sure. That would have been the chapel, which was formed part of uh, part of the original bridge. I mean, this I mean this this in, uh, incarnation of the bridge predates the um, the the uh, the, uh, the Magdus de Marta Church. Um, I mean, one other thing which we haven't really mentioned is that. Um, Pilgrims uh, travelling out to Canterbury would also have had to travel uh, from the north, would have also have to cross over London Bridge before making their way out. I mean, if you think about Southwark, uh, you know, the Tabard, which is in uh, you know, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, would have been on the south bank. Um, but you would have, I mean, at one point about having a chapel on, uh, on the bridge was that, uh, that uh, pilgrims could pay alms before making their way out to, to pay tribute to, to Thomas Becket, the, the martyr. Um, ah, so there was more than one kind of toll going on here. Yes, exactly, and, the, and it was a toll, toll bridge. You had to pay to uh, to cross it. I mean, the the, the great tribute was uh, to, supposed to pay tribute to you know to God in the bridge, and it was a, a religious fulfilment to do that. I, I'm not sure. This seems very, very typically English to me that you get a bunch of uh, would-be pilgrims assembling in uh, the, the city of London, and they make it all the way across one bridge and then have to stop for a pint on the other side. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> What else do we know? Well, it was thirsty work, wasn't it, pilgriming? Let's, let's, let's say. I presume so. <laughs> you think about the, the the place of alcohol in religious worship, you know, from the sacrament. Uh, you know, I think that's it, probably paying tribute in its own way, isn't it? <laughs> I'm going to remember that next time. Uh, next, next time, time I need a pint. drunk somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what have we got going on here? I know some of the quirkier facts, like the buildings met at the top, and mm. I, I believe this bridge. Rumor has it was the foundation of us driving on the left as we do yes, now. Yes, that's right. In order, in order to facilitate. Um, yeah, traffic crossing the over. I mean, they took they took the houses off um, in I think it was seventeen around seventeen fifty. Oh, that I didn't um, know. And um, so, what what was left here then? Just the the stone buildings that well, we they, had, they had. a bit of a refit actually. What what happened was um, Westminster Bridge uh, by Labelli, a Swiss um, architect engineer, um, was created um, in about seventeen fifty, and and. For that reason, Old London Bridge started to look rather archaic uh, with its houses and all the rest of it. So it was modernised. So they took all the houses off, uh, widened it a bit, put little alcoves on it, um, and updated it for you know the for the 17th century, as it were. Um, 
So, you know, there's an element of the thing about, the, about old London Bridge, uh, and someone memorably described, you know, its narrative is a history of repairs um, because it's constantly kind of patched, rebuilt. Uh, it's, you know, it's damaged by fire, uh, frost, uh, continually, um, eat, you know, it sort of damages the stonework. I mean, one thing about it is that because it had these, you know, these 19 cut waters and this drawbridge, it would effectively act, act as like a weir on the river. It would almost block the river. And this is why you had all these, uh, these you know, fantastic frost fairs, you know, which you have these Bruegel-like drawings of people cavorting on the ice. Um, and really what does for Old London Bridge is the frost fair of 200 years ago, of 1814, um, whose anniversary we're effectively celebrating kind of now, um, was that the damage was so severe to the Old London Bridge, they had no choice but to, to finally agree to sort out a replacement bridge, uh, something which they'd attempted to avoid for centuries, really, and just patched, repatched, um, as long as they could get away with it. It looks to me, and I've never noticed this before, you, 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 when you say that the bridge is narrow, it looks to me as though that's emphasised by the fact that the wooden buildings here, all of them as far as I can see along the bridge, are half on the masonry of the bridge and half sort of supported by wooden props, which I can imagine must have a shelf life. Yes, no, the houses, you know, if you think back of a classic kind of image of, uh, of some you know, medieval street with its kind of windy arteries very spindly that this is what you get i mean one of the interesting things about about um, old london bridge is that it that it was considered uh, for, for various reasons one uh, because of the flowing of uh, the water underneath it, although that was practically an open sewer um is that actually it's considered healthier to live on the bridge than it is in the city um partly because you know you can throw the rubbish into the Thames rather than it cluttering up the streets. So at least some of the filth which you would normally have had on a kind of medieval London thoroughfare is less present than it would have been elsewhere. Um, and what happens in a way is that after the Great Fire of London, um, when this church was, uh, after this church also was, was erected, um, the, the old kind of medieval shape of the city starts to break up uh, and you get suburban growth because people have fled the city, their homes have been uh, destroyed. Um, and you get a kind of westward drift which starts to come about in the wake of the Great Fire, fire of London. In a way, I mean, one of the great things about Old London Bridge is, you know, with, as, I've, as I've already said about the idea of it being endlessly patched and botched and put back together and then attempts to modernise it and those kind of rather half-heartedly done, it oddly mirrors the city of London itself in a way that there's no real great plan. And there certainly was a great plan after the Great Fire of London that, you know, uh, Wren and Evelyn both had these, you know, these, these ideas for these you know, grand new city squares and, and revamping the old kind of medieval city streets. But they never came to anything because there were too many vested interests and land ownership and just expediency meant that it didn't happen. So in a sense, our London today still retains some of the kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, street networks um, and Old London Bridge kind of exemplifies that. But, but in 1814, by the time the Frost Fair has, has done in most of the stonework, the City of London, the Corporation of London, have to, and the Bridge House Estates have to contemplate finally uh, building a new bridge. There have been lots of things, there's been lots of plans for new bridges for London prior to that Frost Fair. I mean, one, uh, again, another one which I, I find particularly interesting is that Thomas Paine, the great revolutionary um, 
of the of kind of both the American War of Independence and then the French Revolution after the American War of Independence comes back to to Europe initially to Paris and then to London with a plan for a revolutionary new iron bridge um, he tours England with his future kind of arch enemy Edmund Burke um, looking for sites for location of the, the bridge um, and eventually they hit on the idea that this iron bridge will be erected over the Thames. So Thomas Paine has a plan for an iron bridge for, for London effectively. It never gets beyond the prototype and the prototype is displayed in a pub, the Yorkshire Stingo in Paddington. People pay and go and see this great kind of Iron Age marvel. Um, but unfortunately the French Revolution breaks out and Paine heads back to to France to throw himself back into the political fray and his bridge is never, never realised. But there's this tempting idea of, the, in a sense, one of the founding figures of, of the American Republic has a, has a bridge for London and then again, uh, you know, a bridge for London, of London will, will end up in, in America. Well, I'd like to drift outside, I think, and have a look at where this beautiful to my mind, object would uh, have sat and try and get a sense of what it would have looked like, which I realise is going to be blocked by uh, Some something more modern. <laughs> yeah. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at Londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Well, the attentive ear will uh, immediately notice a difference in sound quality. Yes, we're next to one of the busy thoroughfares here in the city of London. As we step out of the front door, we can see to our right, poking above the office building there, the monument with the flames licking out of it, the source of the Great Fire of London, the starting point of the Great Fire of London, of course, and a popular suicide point for many a long year. And we can see strapped to the side of the church here a piece of timber. What is this? on Roman Wharf, Fish Street Hill, 1931, this was discovered. So it's a, a piece of, 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 of woodwork um, from Fish Street Hill. I mean, Fish Street Hill, which is just opposite us here, uh, this is working incredibly well verbally, isn't it? Well, you, you, you say opposite, I say, I say right. But yes, 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 as, we, as yes. we turn towards the monument, yeah. we, we can see... So monument by monument, true station. Again, you can see, uh, or anyone visiting can see, um, how narrow Fish Street Hill. Fish Street Hill was the main entranceway uh, down into Old London Bridge. Oh, right, so um, you're going to roll down there and you presumably pass the front door. Yeah, and then you go past the church here and... Where you know di- where this building uh, in front of us now stands would have been the the old uh, footpath or you know entrance way to Old London Bridge. Well, that really is insanely narrow. It is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You, if you had uh, a few people milling around and you tried to get two carts past each other in the, the midst of the throng, you'd run into problems. It's certainly true. And that, that's before we get the buildings which encroached on the space as well. Yep. So, okay, they're going to come in. What, 10, 10 feet, 15 feet? People were shorter and lived by the water. So, you know. What can we say? Well, it's all blocked off here. What I propose we do is mooch around to the left here, go past the bottom of Fish, Fish Street Hill, did you say? Yeah, Fish Street Hill. And get ourselves onto the bridge. And, uh, it's we should briefly mention this lump of, of, of stone here um, in, in the kind of courtyard of... Um, St Magnus de Marta Church which is a, a chunk of old London Bridge stonework um, now the bridge, we're go- the bridge we're going to go and visit is obviously the replacement bridge from the, the 1970s but 
so we, we have the, the Frost Fair of 1814, which effectively does for Old London Bridge. And after much haggling and a competition um, and a call for various designs, a design is finally chosen, uh, and it's by the great Scottish engineer John Rennie. Now, John Rennie is... Oh, a, you, say, you, say, yeah. you say great, and I think I've heard yeah. of the name before, but what, yeah. what was he great for? John Rennie had a hand in practically everything. Um, you know, the ball bearing is one of his. Uh, Macadamised road surfaces are also one of his. Um, although he didn't uh, claim the credit for it. Um, he did sections of the London docks. Uh, he did the original Southwark Bridge and the original Waterloo Bridge. Um, both also gone. Um, and in about 1820, his design for... London Bridge was accepted by the Corporation of London uh, as a replacement for the old London Bridge. Now, Rennie actually had died by the time that it was accepted. He died, um, and it was his son, also called John, Jan- John Rennie, later Sir John Rennie, uh, and his brother George Rennie, who carried out the building and design work of, of the Rennie Bridge. In a way, the, the, the 1831 London Bridge is effectively you know Rennie as in the family Rennie rather than uh, uh-huh. rather than John Rennie himself and actually there are there are there's cause to believe that actually his son George probably uh, designed it um, if you actually go out to Hyde Park and look at the bridge that's over the Serpentine which was by George Rennie you get some sense of what the the the, the, the 19th century London Bridge looked like it's quite a similar type of bridge for those without access to the Serpentine at this moment, could we say what's uh, remarkable about that design? I mean, to be honest, it's not that... It wasn't that remarkable a bridge. I mean, it was a, it's, a, it's quite an attractive bridge, but it was a neoclassical bridge um, uh, of, of granite, um, a very monumental construction. When it was completed, uh, and it was opened in 1831, it weighed 130,000 tonnes. It was the heaviest thing that ever, at that point, had ever been erected in London. It was a kind of, it was, you know, it was built to last. Um, but the problem with it, in a way, was that Rennie designed the bridge in the kind of, you know, 1819, 1820. This is before even George Shillaby's horse buses horse omnibuses are running around the city so from the moment it opens and it opens in 1831 it's almost immediately out of date within five years of Rennie's Bridge being opened London Bridge Station opens down the road bringing a whole wave of kind of new commuters into the city of London and you know and transforming the numbers of people entering the bridge Within, within 20 years of it, uh, of its, it being built, there's arguments about having the bridge widened, which in typical fashion uh, no one agrees to, and oh, there's a lot of obfuscation, and, the, and, and it's finally widened in 1902. Now let me get my dates straight here, because I want to make sure I, I haven't fallen down a, a crevice in history here. <laughs> we've, we've got the uh, bridge, the, the old London Bridge yeah. being uh, decommissioned in what year? Well, work begins on um, on London Bridge in the 18, uh, 1820s. So this uh, is what, this is when the old London Bridge ceases to yeah. function. One, one thing that that does happen is that the new London Bridge, let's just call it the Rennie, the Rennie London Bridge, um, is built to the right of the old London Bridge, and this is because the City of London uh, don't want any disruption uh, to to 
people coming in and out of the city and down to Southwark and so on and trade. At, th- at this point, you know, there, there is Westminster Bridge and there is Southwark Bridge, but, but London Bridge is still one of the main ways of getting into the city of London. So the Corporation of London don't want um, any disruption. I mean, Rennie himself actually wanted um, them to close London Bridge, um, ha- build a temporary bridge to one side um, and and, you know, and take the old bridge down before building the new London Bridge. That didn't happen. So what happens is you have old London Bridge is kind of on one side uh, and a new bridge rises up next door to it um, in the 1820s and is finally opened by William IV in great ceremony in 1831. Now, what you said about the about London Bridge bringing more people into the city, does that mean we've got uh, commuters as we would know them now? Yes. I mean, effectively, the arrival both of George Shillibur's omnibus in the 1820s and then the arrival of, uh, of both steam trains but also steam boats on the Thames means that um, you have the first run, in a sense, of suburbanisation... Um, so you know you have people like you know Pluta living in Holloway, uh, you know who travels in on an omnibus to work in the city. So you that that whole phase in a way of, of London life starts to begin from the 1820s onwards. I mean the phrase commuter is is an American phrase um, and it comes from the New York um, subway system uh, or train system and, it's, and it was about you know commutation tickets um, and it's W H Audem who allegedly uh, is the first person to put it into kind of English usage um, in his poem, September 1939. And another poetic element as well. The, the London Bridge, the Rennie London Bridge of 1831, the one which ends up in America, um, is the bridge of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Um, so, you know, another kind of transatlantic connection there with Eliot, obviously, a native of, uh, of St. Louis. Uh, and you've mentioned the departure, I should say, of the bridge to the States. And, of course, this is the perfect juncture. After only 25 minutes of the podcast, to mention the name of your book. <laughs> well, it's called, it's called London Bridge in America, um, the tour story of a transatlantic crossing. But it, there's quite a lot of London Bridge in London <laughs> off the book as well. So. And it's, it's published by Cape, and the paperback's out with uh, Vintage, I think. It is indeed, on that, on that commercial plug, so yes. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you've been good enough to, uh, to, to share a lot of its contents with us. I would say I've had a look at the book, and there's some beautiful photography in there as well, some historical shots as well, so you can get a flavour of each of the, the bridges. Well, looking up, it's not looking too good. We're about to go onto the bridge. It's one of those days which is both stormy and rainy. There's increased road traffic because of the tube situation going on, which means that we're going to be having more and more cars going past us. It's freezing. <laughs> so a perfect London day. Is what perfect, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> A very typical London day, apart from the tube track. Well, we're going to go to a break and a word from our sponsor, and hopefully we're going to appear in just a moment or two bedraggled on London Bridge. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through. I'm on London Bridge with Travis Elber, author of London Bridge in America, and we're on uh, London Bridge in London, and uh, what a miserable day this is. No, I mean, I'm trying to find something. You know, there are, there are rainy days which feel invigorating. Yes. And this really isn't one of those yeah. days. 
Uh, to our four, we can see a number of nondescript buildings. And is that Southwark Cathedral? Oh, no, that... Yes. Yeah, yeah. Southwark yeah, Cathedral. Southwark Cathedral. Uh, obviously the Shard to our left. Uh, we've got Pickford's Wharf over there. And I must say, as I was coming to this meeting, I was admiring some of those wharf buildings. Mm. And they're, they're very individual and uh, some of them quite uh, glamorous in a faded kind of a way. Definitely. I mean, and um, that... The, in a sense, the idea of, of London as being a mercantile river city, with you know the wharfs being uh, taking you know stuff from you know ships sailing around the emerging empire, is the period when Rennie, Rennie's bridge is built. It's when when England is becoming and London is becoming kind of a, a major naval mercantile power. Um, and, yeah, and Rennie was also, as well as being responsible for for and the new bridge for London and also the bridge at, at, at Southwark and Waterloo, um, also had a hand in designing several of, of London's docks. Um, so you know, that's the period, in a way, when uh, when Rennie's bridge is, is, is thrown up is when when the Thames is st- is becoming you know um, not just the main artery for a kind of a, a, a thriving city, but also the port of London is effectively. You know, the mercantile nautical hub of empire. So the Thames uh, you know, is packed with trading vessels uh, which spread out across the entire empire. And that interlay between London um, and its kind of dominions uh, is all about the docks and it's all about the Thames. I mean, those names that are so evocative that are built into the names of, of docks and, um, and the wharfs. Those, those, that's the period when Rene's Bridge is, is erected. So we're talking about 1831-ish yeah. there. I'm curious, have we got the kind of filth and the smoke and all that of the Industrial Revolution clogging up the river yet? It's on its way, put it that way. I mean, steamboats, uh, as I said, were already were, have, have kind of started to arrive on the, on the Thames within, by the 18, late 1830s. London Bridge Station you know, opening in you know, 1835-36. So yes, it's starting to to arrive, but at the moment it's it's in that weird kind of in between phase. Uh, I mean, iron is you know is the new thing in a sense, and and coal um, is coming. Um, I mean, interestingly, when they built the 1831 London Bridge, the the Rene Bridge. it was built not that dissimilarly to how the medieval bridge, the Peter de Colchurch bridge, was built. Um, you know, apart from some steam traction engines to pump some water out, um, very little of this emerging industrial technology was used to build the, the Rene London Bridge of the 18, 1830s. That comes a little bit later. So, in a way, this is London of, uh, you know, of... The kind of London that, that uh, you know, Wordsworth talks about it being, you know, uh, smokeless on his on his Westminster Bridge poem. It's at that weird moment where it's just about to get grubby and dirty. The Victorian industrial hub is, is kind of on its way. I mean, Rennie's Bridge was opened by by William William the Fourth, you know, the, the, the Sailor King, uh, with a great kind of banquet um, on the bridge. And one of the the um, the spectacles of the opening of the bridge was a character called Mr. Green, who's one of the earliest balloonists, um, and he had like a coal-powered balloon, a, a coal dust, coal smoke-powered balloon, which floated out over the proceedings. Now, Green had a scheme to try and fly a balloon to America, which uh, which unfortunately floundered for lack of a backer. But this is the, this at that point, you know, it's this, this odd, just you know, it looks it's a very um. 
you know, slightly steampunk moment, shall we say. We still have all the kind of curlicues of the Georgian society, um, and, and the Victorian age is just about to kind of arrive, um, and with it, the kind of vigour of, of full-on industrialisation. Um, I mean, you know, the, the rocket and, and, um, and railways and that had already kind of... Uh, or on their on their way and on the march. So this is engineering uh, excellence uh, combining really with kind of big ideas and a sense of exuberance and confidence and yes, vision. Yes, very, very much. I mean, I mean, Rene uh, Rene's um, design was you know a neoclassical bridge. It's a very elegant design. When you see photographs of it in situ from you know the the twentieth century, it tends to look a bit dowdy. Um, but actually. Um, having visited it in, in the States in its new home, you can see that it was actually a rather elegant design. But it, it but it's, I think, one of the interesting things is that, you know, it, because it was a, a really a commuter's bridge, uh, it, you know, it becomes just part of the fabric of the city and therefore easy in a way to, to ignore. I mean, Rennie's Waterloo Bridge, um, which was uh, demolished in the 19, 1930s, was always regarded as a more elegant bridge by comparison and the 1831 London Bridge by Rennie was considered a bit dull but you know elegant but a bit dull um there's a name that I associate with that period, which uh, now I'm going to reveal uh, ignorance if I'm if I'm missing uh, something important here. But but Brunel, of course, we associate with working with those materials and, and with bridges as well, of course. Definitely. Um, yeah. Do we have a Brunel bridge? Uh, have we had a Brunel bridge not, in London? Not in London. No, we did have. We do have the Thames Tunnel, uh, which uh, Brunel. Right. Uh, yeah, so Brunel, London. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that, you know, that's Brunel's contribution. Um, to some of the river work. Um, I mean, Brunel was around, you know, was, uh, uh, I mean, his, his, his father um, was, you know, was, uh, was a, a, near, a very near contemporary um, of René. Um, and then, obviously, Isambard King of Brunel, who, who obviously died, died very young. Um, oh, I didn't know that. How, uh, how was he? Uh, something I can't quite remember. I mean, he wasn't very old. He pretty much exhausted himself um, through work. He is the coming man, in a sense, of, of, of this period. Well, we should start uh, drifting across, and of course, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the, the trip to America made by this uh, bridge that we've been discussing. And well, anybody who knows anything about that story knows that uh, some stupid American allegedly bought the bridge, thinking it was an entirely different bridge. So. I almost want to start there, but well, I suppose we, probably, we should, we should we deal should, with the sale and, yeah, and all yeah, of we that. Should, first. We should, we should, we should roll back a little bit. It, effectively, the Rennie Bridge it's it's widened in 1902, um, and and pretty much that it remains as it is for the next 50 years, um, 50 or, or getting on for 60 years. Um, and by the 1960s, as I said, it weighed 130,000 tonnes of granite, it's the heaviest thing in London that's ever been built. By the by, the mid 60s. It's sinking uh, by an eighth of an inch of a year into the Thames. But also by the 60s, you've got these bold plans for building new roads and ring roads through London. You know, schemes, in a sense, which would have, would have meant the demolition of, of Covent Garden, having motorways run through Greenwich. Um, you know, the planning, you know, the, the t- this new era of planning for, for mm. cities. Well, it's got, it's got to be said as well that a huge spate of bridge building going on in the 30s around that time, wasn't it? Definitely, yeah. Um, well, in part, um, I mean, in part because the removal of the old London Bridge meant that uh, many of the other bridges had to be uh, gradually replaced because the Thames 
having after embankment was was moving at a faster and narrower rate and therefore did more damage to the existing bridges i mean waterloo bridge um the demolition for that starts in in the 30s it's it's slightly delayed by by the outbreak of 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 the second world war um and it's kind of fully opened um by the end end of the war and most of the work on that as people may know was, was done by women because um, men were um away fighting which is why it has the the kind of images of women on on the bridge itself thought, can um, we can we linger on that fact because that's uh, that seems an overlooked item it is. Waterloo Bridge was built. Well, by a, lot, women. a lot of the construction work on it, the final construction of it, was done, was done by women because it was done at a point where, when, when the Second World War, and therefore there was a shortage of kind of male labour. That, yeah. that really excites me as an idea. Um, uh, we, we don't hear enough about that, I think. Probably not. No, and we should. Well, we, uh, we've uh, we really have regressed then, haven't we? Because you don't see very many women on building sites, and yet they put up one of the most uh, notable structures in our city. Okay, anyway, you were saying uh, uh, we're, talking, <laughs> we're, we're talking about regeneration and uh, yeah, it, city I mean, planning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the 1960s, you, you have a kind of a, a, a an almost a kind of mania for for for, for planning, rebuilding, and recreation, um, an urge, in a sense, to be rid of the bomb dust of of the Second World War. Um, and with that comes things like the destruction of the Euston Arch, um, uh, where you know the sort of Hardwick's huge um, entranceway to Euston Station is is demolished and most of it dumped into the River Lee. Um, in the plans, to, the British Transport Commission's plans to redevelop Euston Station, turning it into something that looks a bit more like you know a, a, an airport terminal rather than a than a, a centre of steam. Um, travel shall we say um so that you know there's an urge to remake the city and make it new and very li- you know very little in of old london in a way isn't earmarked for some form of de- demolition or, or rebuilding and, and london bridge isn't immune from that um so in the mid 60s uh the corporation of london announced plans to build a new bridge for london uh and uh, and that's what they did they uh, they employ um a character called uh, William Holford, who was also responsible for the rebuilding of Paternoster Square by St Paul's, um, and also he, Pat, Holford also had a plan for a, a, a reconstruction of Piccadilly Circus, where uh, Piccadilly Circus would effectively be raised above um, a kind of motorway, and Eros would be on a on a flower shop on a kind of odd pedestal. Uh, the plans uh, didn't come to anything in the end. Have you seen these plans? I have. Yes. What, what do you think of them? Um, they're not incredibly inspiring. I mean, they're, they're very of they're very of that time. They, they're rather like I mean, they're, they're classic sort of nineteen sixties sleek um, kind of modernity. Modernity being largely a. Uh, you know, a ring road and a motorway. Um, you, nobody said the word brutalist yet. I'm surprised. Uh, well, they're, they're sort of brutalist. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Holford's Paternoster Square uh, is, you know, is the is, was quite quite brutalist. Or, or just uh, brutal. Yeah, or just brutal. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, listener, I, I should apologise, uh, but only with, uh, uh, but only half-heartedly for the uh, wind going into the microphone at the moment. Um, you try recording a podcast on a bridge in high wind. <laughs> should, should you walk over and maybe go to the steps from a little bit more shady? Well, any, anywhere with, uh, with warmth really is starting to seem quite attractive. Yeah. I'll do a little trailer, a bit of a teaser. We're going up one of the, uh, one of the most notable tool structures in London in uh, an episode fairly soon. And it's going to be similarly windy.
Well, we're crossing over the bridge now. And to, obviously to our left is, is Tower Bridge, um, which, uh, when, it was, when it was originally erected, uh, and it's actually it's only from the 18, 1880s, 1890s, uh, Tower Bridge is, it was really a kind of, it's a spring chicken of a bridge in relation uh, even to, to, uh, to Rennie's Bridge. Um, and at the time was, was considered uh, a, a, a something of a, a folly and, uh, and described as being a kind of gimcrack uh, of, of cod gothicism, as it were. That's a sentence that rolls off the tongue. Exactly, I know you didn't. <laughs> it's, I've never really warmed to it. It's so terribly fussy, isn't it? It's busy. I mean, there, there was a plan to encase... I mean, again, these great plans. There was a plan at one, one point to encase... Uh, the bridge in, in glass really uh, and uh, tower bridge this is and, um, and convert some elements of it into housing but um, that, that also floundered <laughs> so. yeah that, that would seem sort of structurally dangerous as well, well although, although it so, might have sorted yeah. out this podcast there we go some of the port buildings off to our left there are particularly like the uh, the Hayes Wharf one yeah. there uh, which seems to me to have something of 1910 about it it does it's kind of deco, isn't it, in its design? Yeah, almost, almost, almost pre-deco, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Niveau, perhaps, is that the... Oh, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, let's, let's get down to business, then. Uh, we've got the uh, desire for a new bridge. We know that this one's got to be replaced. What happens next? Well, first off, the... the um, William Holt... I mean, William Holt is actually the architectural consultant on the plan. The design for almost the engineering work that the new London Bridge, the one we're walking on now... Um, was done by a, ca- a man called Michael Leeming. Um, so which name do we uh, attach to this bridge? It's probably Holford, really. I mean, um, I, mean, no, I, mean, I mean, Leeming was working for um, the particular firm that built it, and I mean, he did the hard, the hard engineering of it. He did a uh, tower in Pisa, didn't he? Uh, not, not, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. <laughs> he didn't get my joke. Oh, sorry, right. <laughs> Leeming, not Leeming. Oh, I see, OK. <laughs> The contract is, is is awarded and work begins on the new London Bridge in, in 1967. Um, now, entering the fray at this moment um, is a member of the Bridge House Estates Committee who is a character called Ivan or Frankie Luckin. Now, Ivan Luckin or Frankie Luckin uh, was, a, was a former city correspondent for The Telegraph uh, and worked in kind of press and publicity before entering, entering in, into city politics. Um, now, he is the person who comes up with the idea of selling London Bridge, selling Rennie's London Bridge. Um, and initially, many of his other um, city councillors um, and committee members are none too impressed by this idea. Yes, who, who would want to buy a bridge? Exactly. Um, in fact, the exact phrasing used was, who do you think would pay money for a heap of old stones? Um, and Luckin argued that, that uh, he thought someone would buy it, and also he argued that he thought um, he could probably get a million pounds for these heap of old stones. Well, where did this confidence come from on Luckin's part? Well, I mean, Luckin, Luckin was, um, you know, he's a, he's a larger-than-life character, shall we say. Luckin was also a huge admirer of, um, as, an old, as an old newspaper man himself, he was a huge admirer of William Randolph Hearst, who um, was the model for Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Now, Hearst 
um, was a great scooper-upper of architectural treasures from around uh, the globe, including some, some from Britain. Um, and actually, the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings once ran a tube uh, poster campaign warning people about Hearst's activities and demanding him to cease buying up old buildings. He bought a, a kind of medieval tithe barn from, from Wiltshire and had it shipped out to his place in, um, in Northern California. Um, so Hearst, in a way, had, had, a, had, a, had a kind of... Um, sorry, Luckin had a, had a Hearst-like character in mind. Mm. I mean, during this period as well, you have things like the Queen Mary, the ocean liner, is also sold um, and, and shipped out um, to California, um, to Long Beach, to become a floating museum. And also uh, the ruined Wren Church, St Mary Aldermanbury, um, is, is taken apart um, and shipped out to um, Fulton, Missouri, um, as part of a, a, a kind of war memorial thing. Um, uh, Missouri is, uh, Fulton, Missouri is also where Winston Churchill made uh, the famous Iron Curtain speech. Um, and uh, this, was, this was just after Churchill's death. Um, so so there's a, there was a precedent, in a way, a few precedents for um, the idea of Americans buying you know, bits of British kit and then kind of shipping them out and turning them into something else. Um, and Luckin certainly thought that the buyer would be a, uh, would be an American. Um, though there was a genuine um, concern in a way about who might buy the bridge among the, the Corporation of London, uh, and, uh, and and one of the idea of the favoured bidders for this was possibly uh, you know, a Commonwealth country, either Australia or Canada. Um, but in the end, so we're, so we're sort of keeping it in the family. Keeping that it was in the, the family, right. exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's a piece in the Guardian when the sale is announced. Um, uh, or the bidding for the sale is announced where it's suggesting you know, that London, Ontario would be a good place to, for it to go. So in the end, um, Luckin launches this campaign for, uh, you know, to put London Bridge up for sale. He creates this wonderful brochure which is, uh, you know, has folding bits and it charts the history of London Bridge. And it doesn't just chart the history of the bridge, the 1831 Rene Bridge. It traces it right back to the Romans uh, and moves through, you know, a thousand glorious years of British history of the bridge. So, you know, the, the booklet has lots of, you know, heads on sticks, uh, monarchs, you know, peasants' revolts, you name it. has all this history. And that, in a way, is, is Luckin's thing. He, he sells it not as a lump of old stone from 1831, half of the stone actually being from 1902, uh, when it was widened. He sells it as a chunk of British history, and that is what he offers to the world for them to buy. The rain has started to pick up as we've been recording. (laughs) We're going to scramble for shelter, there's a likely-looking building with a, a nice big porch well, we going on the left-hand side. We should probably go over the other side. Oh, you want us over there? Well, uh, and go down to the... Go down to the we're, we're walking now towards, in a way, the remaining archway ah. um, of the Rene Bridge, the bit that didn't go to America. So if we go across over here, we can go down to the, um, what are called the Nancy Steps, because they appear in uh, Charles Dickens's Oliver Twist. So that's, um, oh, good. OK, so you're, you're tying us in here with a talk, a very popular episode, I've got to say, that we did with John Smalter a couple of weeks ago. And he, in passing, well, he, he mentioned the Nancy Steps, and in passing he said, ha-ha, we, we didn't sell this bit to America. So now, now I'm starting to get some context here. We've, <laughs> we've swindled America, haven't we? <laughs> what, by, by leaving them some steps behind? <laughs> I think that, you know... <laughs> 
so we're now walking down into the, one of the remaining uh, archways. We're down, this, down these steps, which are referred to as the, the Nancy Steps from their appearance in, in Oliver Twist. And in that, that novel, um, the new, it's brand new at that point, the dating of the novel is, in, is a new... Um, it's a new bridge. It's where, in a way, the kind of badlands of Southwark uh, interact with the civilised city um, where kind of Nancy... Um, you know, is, this is the point of exchange between those two, two class, the criminal class and the, and the kind of civil class, the world of, of Sykes um, and, you know, and the borough um, meets you know, the gentry uh, you know, with their Clark and Well Green bookshops and so on. Down we come on the Jubilee walkway. And here we go, we're in the archway beneath the bridge. And we can, to, uh, just upstairs, we have the London Bridge experience, uh, which has uh, an array of heads on spikes, which seems that the only experience of London Bridge is to be uh, either kind of slaughtered or stuck on a spike. And, uh, a true London Bridge experience, if they're talking about the old London Bridge, would be to sort of be stuck in traffic. Except for hours, yeah. But, that, but there were pubs on the bridge, so you could have, have you know, taverns on the bridge, so you could have had a drink there. <laughs> uh, and there's a tavern here to the left of us as well, inside the, uh, the remaining René Archway, the Mughouse pub, which is encased in here. Well, now we, we don't have as long left on the clock as we could, because it's always a rich fund of stories and ideas and details and it sort of as you say it kind of encapsulates the history of London in so many ways uh, we've got to get down to the character Indeed, who, who yeah. bought this bridge so Ivan Lakinu put offers the bridge up for sale and the people who eventually put in the, the winning bid are a couple of uh, again rather uh, charismatic uh, characters you know um, they're two American businessmen and they are Robert Paxton McCulloch um, who is an oil tycoon. He is also the inventor of the one-person-operated chainsaw. McCulloch chainsaws has made a lot of his money out of that. He also invents the Paxton Supercharger, uh, which is a kind of a, a thing fitted to uh, you know, souped-up cars. Um, so he's, you know, he's, a, he's a lively figure. He also invests in property. Um, you know, and his business partner... Uh, is a man called C.V. Wood Jr., or Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood Jr. <laughs> could, could these guys sound any more American? Well, exactly. Uh, and and C.V. Wood was uh, a former theme park designer. He'd had a hand in Disneyland um, and also had uh, been behind a, a theme park called Freedomland, which was built on the Pelham Bay rubbish dump and was a kind of um, a, a sort of journey through rides through American history, uh, which is a bit of a flop, unfortunately, for him. But by um, the middle 60s uh, Wood and McCulloch uh, as part of this McCulloch Incorporated are in the process of building an entirely new city um, out in a place called Lake Havasu um, now before 1948 there is no Lake Havasu, it's only with the creation of did the they, Parker Dam they buy that from somewhere? No, no, no. <laughs> basically it's the creation of the Parker Dam which on the Colorado River which creates Lake Havasu um, and McCulloch has, has a, essentially has an outboard motor company and he wants to have a test site for that so he establishes a test site out on Lake Havasu uh, in the early 60s and then decides hey why don't I just relocate my chainsaw plant out there as well and build an entire new city so from 1963 uh, he starts building this entire new city which is called Lake Havasu City it's going quite well the idea is it's going to have light industry um, but because of the lake it's going to have fishing 
um, and it'll be like a leisure resort. Uh, plots are selling pretty well, but you know it's a bit slow, a bit sluggish. And CV Wood hears that London Bridge is for sale, and he persuades uh, McCulloch that they should buy London Bridge, and make it like a tourist attraction, the centre of this new resort city, and that's what they do. Um, so in 1968, they become the proud owners of René's London Bridge, which they then have 10,000 tonnes of its brickwork, uh, or its stonework, its, its granite, shipped out to Lake Havasu. And they, they number all the bits, don't they, and sort of they reassemble do. it. Yes, yeah, there was actually a 17-year-old apprentice uh, called Alan Sainz, uh, who I certainly have tracked down, but various people have attempted to look for him, so if he's, if he's out there listening, we'd love to hear from you, um, whose job it was to number... The stones. No, they got the intern to do it. Practically, yeah. Well, in those are pre, these are these are more uh, noble days of labouring. So at least he was on, on a wage as a as an apprentice. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, but McCulloch is slightly unhappy with the speed with which a lot of this is happening. So he sacks the British firm and employs a Swedish company who are at the forefront of containerization to ship the, the stones out to America so in a way that's rather a sad chapter because at this point is when the London docks are starting to close down so again there's a circle here in the story Rennie's London Bridge is built at a point uh, when the when the docks are coming into their own and, and Rennie himself was the designer behind several of London docks and then by the time his bridge is being taken apart and flogged off to America is also when those docks are closing down so it's a nice kind of point it's here. and also there's another thing in a way that that the idea of freight being a kind of river the river being a, a passage for freight is, is also being superseded by the idea of you know, long-distance lorries and, and that uh, taking over. We're in the final minutes of this podcast, and there is nothing that I want to do more at this point than uh, dig into that controversy around whether he got the right bridge, whether he intended to. You've got your theory about this. I do. I mean, I, I've looked, I looked long and hard at all the information I could find. Um, I've delved through various archives and um, looked through various city documents. There, I mean, th- there are two things, really. One is Luckin produced this incredible pamphlet, which also showed exactly what you were buying. It has a plan showing you exactly what you have to buy. The thing about the, what they bought was that they bought 10,000 tonnes of the granite as I've already said the original bridge was 130,000 tonnes of granite so what they really bought was the fascia they bought the kind of outer edge of the bridge and what is out in Lake Havasu City is the external brickwork over a frame the frame actually was designed by Michael Leeming who did the the new London Bridge as well the engineering of it Um, so in a sense they had to know what they were buying because you have to build a bridge in order to erect the bridge in the first place. I mean, the bridge, their bridge was a... The London Bridge, when it was erected over in Lake Havasu, was actually erected on dry land. It was erected on a, a piece of desert, and then they dynamited a section uh, uh, through the lake to divert the water. So it was actually uh, the, uh, fantastic photographs of the bridge being erected on, you know, on sand, on desert sand. So it's a lot easier to erect a, a bridge in, in, uh, on dry land than it is when they're midway through a river. So that's another reason why it's extremely unlikely that uh, they got the wrong bridge. That's not to say that in their initial approaches they thought they were after something else. But by the time they signed the deal and handed over the money, 
they had to know what they were they were buying. So let me finally then ask where this scurrilous rumour has come from. Well, I mean, there is uh, a piece of archive footage or archive sound, which is an interview. Uh, I mean, I argue in the book that one possible source of, of the rumour, and, and really there's very, there's no, if you look back through old newspaper reports from the 60s, there's, you know, no one mentions Tower Bridge particularly. Um, what does happen though is that McCulloch Jr., uh, Robert Paxton McCulloch's son, gives an interview to the Today program um, and about the, about the sale. He talks about you know what they're going to do, how they're going to erect it on dry land, um, and so on. And towards the end of the interview, Jack DeMagno, the then presenter of the Today program, uh, just says, "Well, you know, have you got your eye on anything else? Uh, you know, Buckingham Palace or you know the Tower of London?" And McCulloch Jr. sort of shoots back, and it's and it's a light-hearted exchange. It's a kind of jokey, joshing exchange says well you know i did ask mr king who's the the city engineer uh about tower bridge but he said he didn't want to sell and if you imagine this is you know the today program it's first thing in the morning you know it's uh you know you're you're shoving toast into your mouth you're trying to get out for work you've already heard this american tell you that he's going to erect london bridge over dry land and then you half-heartedly hear him say oh and i asked about tower bridge come opening time you know uh, you know that night you know, all the pubs of London, everyone is saying, oh, you hear that thing on the radio, uh, you know, they're going to erect over dry land, but they wanted Tower Bridge. You can imagine how that might blur. But also, you know, the bridge is sold at the height of, or towards the end, in a way, of, of, of swinging London mania, in a way. Uh, you know, you've got 1966, you know, the World Cup, you've got, you know, London is feeling very good about itself. By the time the new London Bridge is, is, is erected and, uh, in, you know, by the early 70s. The economy is doing less good. You've got the ignominious defeat of Mexico 1970. Um, and a kind of endism which has entered the, the British psyche after the heady days of, of the 60s. So you can see why maybe thinking you can, you know, cocking a snook at the Yanks might gain a bit more traction by, by that time. Well... That's a very interesting angle. I mean, it goes without saying that's an interesting angle on a, an object that sits uh, in amongst us all the time and we, we pass over it. And uh, I have to say, a lot of the focus is on the early end of its history and it's, it's been really refreshing finding out uh, some of its more modern history. And I dare say that we could linger on the bridge that has existed since the end point of today's podcast. And there uh, maybe there's a sequel there, I don't know. The book that you've got out at the moment is out in paperback now, as we mentioned. And uh, where are you doing signings and talks? And- um, I'm doing a, a talk on the 19th uh, of February at Waterstones in Piccadilly. Um, and I imagine some other ones after that too. Uh, but yeah, it's available in, in all good bookshops, some bad ones, but um, please try and buy it in a shop, as it were. So, yeah, support. London's uh, independent shops as well. Well said. Travis Elbert, thanks very much. A pleasure. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest, Travis Elbert. Thanks to to Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm in Quentin Wolfe.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.